Ben's dead, all right. No kidding. He's so cold. Is the pizza? Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we like our slumber parties with a side of murder. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you are new to the show, welcome. In real life, the Final Girls put in events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. And on the show, we take a horror trope, think and talk about it in depth over the whole series. Which basically means that I invite very smart, very funny women and non-binary folk to talk about horror movies in depth with me. And in this fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror, how it's evolved and why teenagers, and especially teenage girls, make some amazing and compelling protagonists. Before we dive into our double bill this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Ghost UK for updates, event announcements, special invitations, tons of horror-y TikToks, and we also have a Patreon where you can support our work if you so choose to and get occasional bonus episodes. We also have an editorial platform where we commission new essays by amazing writers with new stuff coming out every week. So I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter to be the first one to receive all these straight in your inbox. With all that said, today's episode, we're very much still in the 80s slasher heyday with the first two entries into a unique franchise, The Slumber Party Massacre. The premise of all the films is pretty simple. A group of girls have a slumber party and a killer tries to murder them all with a massive drill. Not overcompensating for anything at all. The interesting thing is that it remains the only slasher franchise written and directed entirely by women, and there's also a reboot coming out later this year. So the entire franchise is kind of filled with feminist intentions, whether they succeed or not we shall see in this episode. If you're new to the show and have never seen these films before, like I said, the plot is pretty simple, so there's not much to spoil, but we do go into detailed conversations about both the films pretty much from the beginning. Much like our discussion about Prom Night last week, there is also extensive chat about the dance sequences in Slumber Party Massacre Part 2. It's like I'm obsessed with dance horror or something. Joining me in this episode is the wonderful podcaster and Freudian cinephile Mary Wilde, who joins me to go deep and not so deep on the Slumber Party double bill. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on the Slumber Party Massacre parts one and two. Mary, thank you so much for coming back into the podcast and for picking this particular double bill. Oh, hi, Anna. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm so excited to be talking about the Slumber Party Massacre 1 and 2. <laughs> I think it's very telling that we've left off 3 because um, mm. <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the less said about it, the better. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it exists. We'll leave it, it exists. at that. Yeah. But before we kind of dive into what Slumber Party Massacre uh, the first one and the second one are and ripping them apart a little bit. Can you tell me why you picked these? Like, what do these films mean to you? Oh, wow. Well, when I saw your list, first of all, I was really impressed with the selection that you had going on. And I would have happily done every single one of them with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I decided on these two in the first instance because there's something really subversive about them that... I'm really kind of intrigued by, and it produces a really strong feeling in me when I watch them. I do really love these movies, truly. And I've never really had an opportunity to discuss them before. So I thought, well, this is this is great. I can't wait to talk about it with you. Amazing. So I want to dive into all all kind of all that love and all that subversion that you see in these films. But to set the scene, how would you summarize the Slumber Party Massacre? Well, um, in a nutshell, it's a film that follows a high school senior who gathers her friends around for a slumber party. 
and they're all unaware that an escaped power drill wielding killer is loose in the neighborhood. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, I guess you could say that it does follow certain tropes. I mean, I, it, in my understanding, the, the original creators of this movie were setting out to almost do a parody of the slasher, mm-hmm. but, I think it's sort of diverted away from that plan. And am I right in thinking that the studio ended up um, telling them to shoot a straight movie? You are. So it was written by Rita Mae Brown as who's kind of a feminist writer as a parody, as a, Mm. as a satire of slasher films and the sexist tropes that she saw in them. Mm. And then when it, it was produced by Roger Corman and, and his company and, it it kind of became a straight slasher so a more a more direct um entry into the the slasher the slashers that were kind of really exploding all over the place after Mm. the really big you know genre defining films that had come out in the mid and late 70s the 80s were very much you know franchise the shit out of everything yeah (laughs) and do as many of these as possible so it was kind of aiming for that but i think and you know we can discuss this later a mm. lot of the humor still is alive in the film <laughs> and although the credit in the film is given only to Rita Marie Brown um Amy Holden Jones who's the director has she's written i think i found a blog post that she wrote mm. a while ago when i first found out about this film that she very yeah. heavily rewrote the script uh but is not credited as a writer on it oh interesting but Yes, that is that is the premise, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can watching it, you can kind of tell that, that there there was always the kind of like origins of tongue in cheek, mm. absolutely throughout it, and it just runs through. Um, but it is this strange interaction between the desire to do a parody and the mm. insistence on doing it straight mm. that ends up coming producing this kind of final result that is weirdly like alluring, but for very taboo reasons. And I think that's why I like it so much. Okay, well, go into ta- the taboo reasons. Don't tease me with taboos oh. and then don't explain <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> um, well, I mean, firstly, the the opening scene, mm-hmm. um, you know, of this young uh, you know, this 18 year old girl waking up right away, we see like her m- morning routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, pretty, you know, I watch wholesome content, Anna, you know, um, <laughs> I watch YouTube videos of, uh, influencers doing their morning routine. Not once have I seen anyone look so. <laughs> sexy in the morning it basically know? starts off as a softcore porn doesn't it where totally it's like, i'm gonna admi- it's like she grew breasts overnight and she's like oh hello i must now throw away all my toys yeah and put on a sexy dress because i have now overnight become a woman <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've completely just blossomed within like a day and I'm just collecting all my old kid stuff mm-hmm. and getting ready to be, you know, this kind of sensual adult woman. Um, it's really, it's a very funny opening scene. Um, and I do, I have to admit, I watched it with my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'd seen it before, but I rewatched it. He'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. And when he saw that opening scene, he's like, uh, what is this podcast you're going on? I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> My husband is a Catholic man. He's like a he's like the original trad calf, you know. So he's 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 a little bit, you know, he's blushing a little bit. And I thought it was so sweet. Um, but no, I think just that really sets the tone, I think, for the film, mm-hmm. because I think that in that scene, the crux of the movie is already there. This kind of rejection or turning away from childhood and kind of having this um newfound embracing of all the things that await you in in, you, in, in adulthood and womanhood. Mm-hmm. And I think it just picks up from there. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things, and I wanted to ask you about what you think makes this film subversive, like you mentioned mm. before. One of the things that, the setup is fairly simplistic, but then a lot of the what the girls do is kind of 
all the telltale signs in slasher rules yeah. that will get them murdered. You know, they're only talking about boys. They're like <laughs> hanging out. They're smoking weed. They're talking about sex. They're sexually active. Like all of them are kind of marked for <laughs> death. Yeah. But that's not exactly how the film plays out. No, no, exactly. I think... I think the, the taboo or subversive element that I identify in it really is in, it's kind of embodied in the weapon of choice, mm. the power, you know, the power drill. And, it, you know, you don't have to be a Freudian to, <laughs> to make the link between this murderer's weapon and the phallic element and, you know, the drilling. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, there's so many great scenes of like, the the tool like pushing into walls and through like doors and stuff. Um, by the way, I did I had completely forgotten about that whole peephole business. Um, <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> but I think what makes it so kind of a little bit um, risky, a bit daring, mm. subversive to me is I I enjoy this movie purely on the basis that I'm reading it entirely as the young female protagonist's desire, mm-hmm. um, you know, f- for having sex. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, of course there's a history and there's a tradition in slashers where it's very like male oriented and like, it's all about what the, what the male per, uh, predator or perpetrator wants to do to the women. And it's very exploitative. And there's something to be said about that too. Mm-hmm. But I think here, so much, like every, practically every frame is so like, just like completely coded in uh, this kind of intimate bond between women, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's showing them showering together and it's, there's something very sensual, very like almost romantic going on. Even when we have like the the character of Valerie, you know, mm-hmm. who's she's a bit of an outcast, um, but Trish wants to kind of include her in the friend group, and I think there's I I feel like even just that is quite romantic. There's something quite sweet and like there's this I don't know if there's it's it's a solidarity between sisters or something a little bit more like maybe bi curious going on there, but. Whatever it is, it's, it, it's, it's, for me, it sets up already this like little subtext of unrequited love and longing for someone and feeling like you can't have that person. So it's like star-crossed lovers, you know, situation where Valerie has to stay home with her little sister. She's only mm-hmm. across the street, but she can't go, she can't go to this party. And because it's so, I feel like it's, v- even though, yes, of course, in the end, the studio demanded a straight slasher. Mm-hmm. I actually think the female voice has prevailed here. I think that, you know. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And um, it's I never thought about it as like circus solvers. And I love that interpretation of it. <laughs> I do. I mean, I know and it's kind of been on the record and a while back because we screen the slumber party massacre one and two at the bfi a few years ago and let me tell you screening part two at the national film theater in london is an experience Mm. it's a choice (laughs) 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 it was amazing amazing Um, so when i was researching those films like at that time and and before this as well like there was i think amy holden's jones's voice and her choice of framing and stuff really is evident here like you can really feel that this is um this is a a a director who's trying to make a statement or trying to avoid certain tropes i know that there's a couple of scenes especially in the showers and stuff like that with some soft nudity of the Mm -hmm. actresses that has she's also talked about kind of being forced into doing by the producers Mm -hmm. Mm. to fit into what the expectations are of slasher films or what they were at that time. So she very much resented them. And I think she's even said, and you can tell in the film, they're kind of less artful than other scenes because she's just like, okay, well, you want tits? Well, here's some tits. You want some ass? Well, here's some ass. Like, I'm just going to do a straight image, like straight shot of of some butt cheeks. Like, there Mm. you go. On a platter. Yeah, it's like, okay, I'm done here. I don't want, like, I don't want to do this. But you're forcing me to, fine, here you go, some butt cheeks. Interesting. Then we move on. Um, And I really feel that because even when I first saw the film, those scenes kind of really stood out as being off 
tonally mm-hmm. with the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Because the thing that you mentioned about kind of the the solidarity between women, there's a little bit of bullying going on. There's a little bit of kind of girl gang tension, yeah. which is always interesting to see. And these sort of two groups, right? Because there's mm-hmm. the 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 group of friends of girlfriends, and then there's Valerie Valerie and her sister Courtney, who are across the street, but kind of isolated and kind of hanging out by themselves. And yeah. the other group of girls, and then and then eventually they get together and they they defeat this killer. They have to they have to bond together for a shared yeah. purpose and protect each other. They but, work together, yeah. Which is kind of as well uh, as well the kind of the I think the quietly subversive thing from from this film is that it's there's not there's not ever just one protagonist. It's all about the group of yes. young women of girls, as opposed to just a single one that's the one that we should care about they all yeah. have personalities and none of them kind of fit into you know this is the mean one this is the slutty one this is the wholesome one they're all kind of a bit of everything yeah they're very yeah you're right they're quite well-rounded characters aren't they mm. aren't they and yeah. I w- and i wonder if you um if you notice well with valerie and courtney who are when they're hanging mm-hmm. out they're kind of talking about boys and they're leaving they're leaving through magazines <laughs> yeah looking at looking at um at burly naked men good for them mm, yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was hilarious you know i mean i have a little sister so mm-hmm. um it just kind of harked me back to um living at home with my family when i was younger and like how we used to bicker but all, how we used to tease each other she'd read my diary i love that I love that girly stuff being represented on screen and I just love the way it's shot and the whole business of like braiding your sister's hair, doing her makeup and she wants to be just like you. And, you know, there's this kind of little bit of um, rivalry, but it's all very like, ultimately you have each other's backs, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, yeah, I think that it's, I I like your, um, your statement about how the film doesn't try and, isolate the experience of any just one girl there's it's it's like Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of what we're seeing can be seen as a kind of collective Mm -hmm. working together that any one of us thinking back to when we were teenagers we can relate to pretty much all the women in the film Mm -hmm. and I like that inclusivity of it I like how the girls are so comfortable with each other and they 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 joke around there's there's not this kind of self-conscious Mm-hmm. Um, feeling about how they appear in their bodies and um to be honest I felt a bit of FOMO um <laughs> you know I I wish I was there with them hanging out you know like it, it just <laughs> it it looked fun I like the way that the mm-hmm. movie makes the slumber party experience look so inviting and fun and and like something carefree mm-hmm. that is not it's not meant to be serious and you're doing everything except sleeping mm-hmm. you know um if this is your little enclave as a young woman experimenting and wanting to like have a little bit of a secret and sh- gossip with your gal pals and this is your time to do it the parents are away you mm-hmm. have a limited amount of time and you kind of get you, you gotta live in the moment <laughs> and i love as well that there's there's no love interest in here mm-hmm. the only sort of teenage boys that we get are literally horn dogs like they're yeah. basically <laughs> just doing anything to just leer at the girls they peep at them but they're the it kind of reminded me in a way of um anna biller's the love witch where the male characters are all so underwritten on purpose (laughs) to make them uh like caricatures and it kind of feels the same here where it's like no these guys are just there's no personality to them they're they're just there they just want they just want to see some tits and (laughs) they're behaving like literally um unhinged little puppies (laughs) (laughs) i love that line and I kind of love that because usually we always get in slasher films like there's one love interest, there's a boy who's slightly different, he's a pick me boy, and yeah. then he he either ends up dying or saving the final girl. And here we get none of that. It's all no. about the girls. Nobody else matters. Not the parents, not the boys. It really centers them in every single way. Yeah, that's so true. That is so true. It's it. I love that you stated that they're underwritten on purpose, and you really feel that watching the movie. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, they are just an afterthought. It's really about the dominance of um, female subjectivity mm-hmm. at, at that particular age. I mean, actually, I even thought rewatching it again mm-hmm. that the next door neighbor, you know, that the male uh, yes. guardian, as it were, who, mm-hmm. who's kind of instructed by Trisha's parents to kind of look after her and mm-hmm. like, you know, be the watchful eye and make sure she doesn't get into any trouble. I love how that was a misdirection because mm-hmm. I, I had when I first saw that movie, I thought that he might have been potentially the killer, mm-hmm. you know, um, or that he was going to try and like sexually assault the girls or something like mm-hmm. that. And I, I love that misdirection that actually it's just this little hint that he might pose a threat or that because you can see that Trish is really annoyed by him. But actually, in the end, he's irrelevant. He's completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that works very much in your theory that this is this is about. Um, this is like a psychologically female space mm-hmm. and the men are just passing through maybe like fleetingly. They're just tourists. Um, yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. Tourists. <laughs> except one man. Yes. Except there's, only, one man. <laughs> there's only one man that matters in this film. Oh my gosh. Oh my um, gosh. I have some thoughts about him. <laughs> tell me what you think about the driller killer. Well, the driller killer in my mind, I, I have this association with him mm-hmm. and I don't know whether it's right or wrong. I haven't, I'm not, I've not read enough about these films to know whether it's a prevalent feeling, but Anna, he really reminds me of Bob from Twin Peaks. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Right? Mary, thank you. Oh my God. Like same creepy, crazed look in his mm. eyes, almost like the same outfit, like double denim. You yes. Know? <laughs> Double denim all the way with a red red shirt, right? Mm-hmm. And just this kind of like maniacal look, um, hardly any lines at all, you know. Um, he is he, he's more like almost this nightmarish entity and this allegory or metaphor because of the way he acts, rather mm-hmm. than an actual person, you know. Um, and that I have to say, to me, that's very effective at a mm-hmm. horror level. I, yeah, and I just can't help but find him really scary and and unsettling because mm-hmm. because he's not written and acted and performed in such a way that you can imagine a real life person mm-hmm. uh, with like a character development um, behave. So you can't predict what he's going to do. You just know that he's he's just a murdering lunatic with one aim mm-hmm. and that's to just like pierce through people with his power drill. Like yes. that's literally his whole aim. And that's why I, ke- I keep thinking that the choice of weapon, um, you know, the drilling in and out, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess I just feel like he's more of a a fantasy like a taboo fantasy of mm-hmm. young women who are experimenting and like discovering themselves sexually i mean we know that one of the girls in the in the friend group um you know she is already sexually active mm-hmm. and this becomes like a kind of um i guess like a topic of of a little bit of like gentle ridicule mm-hmm. you know like the girls listening listening in on her phone call with her with her with her boyfriend <laughs> that's such a funny moment when she says am i getting better yeah <laughs> bless her bless her honestly so sweet and they all kind of like you know take the mickey and stuff but i guess what i'm saying is that to me this killer the driller killer is it's like he's just this abstract um you know, the mm-hmm. fearful element of sexuality that for whatever reason, you know, whether it's the fear of the physical pain of mm-hmm. having, um, you know, heterosexual intercourse with a man mm-hmm. or whether it's like the indoctrination of women in a, in a patriarchal society where there's so much like sexism and double standards around female desire that women are, you know, really groomed actually to feel ashamed of mm-hmm. wanting to have sex so there's a lot of different like factors working together that contribute to the idea and the concept of mm-hmm. um, sexual intercourse as being something terrifying, actually scary, like that could harm you. Mm. And I feel like he is, I really just read this film as a metaphor for that. And I feel like his constant, you know, like 
lurking around, peeping through the window, stalking these girls. He's never far from them, i.e. The sex is never far from their mind, but it's particularly the scary element of sex that they're preoccupied with. I see. I see. I love, like, I think it works on, on s- several levels. Yes, it does. And, and I love that reading of it because I'm like thinking of scenes as you were speaking and he's both a kind of, he's a, a very simplistic idea of sexual threat and sexual violence as opposed to i don't take it as like um i don't really read him as a as a metaphor for sex for sex in general mm. but i do for sexual violence in the in this kind of shamey way where and you know it's a conversation we we're having a lot right now in yeah. the culture in the in the discourse yeah. that you know why is it women's responsibility to protect themselves from sexual violence like that threat always hanging over over our heads every day and when things happen that essentially women the victims being blamed for it instead of acknowledging that there is a culture that creates um that creates immunity for for sexual assault um Mm, and i'm thinking of him as like this constant threat that makes it in the safe space that they're created you know this the slumber party where they're talking about stuff you know and they're changing clothes like none of it is sexual no it's not but when he you know for lack of a better word like penetrates that safe space it's this constant over the top like aggressive threat of the stranger danger sex offender who's gonna literally drill a hole for your skull or your belly obviously that's a metaphor for penetration but it it's all about assault as opposed to sex to me Mm. and kind of in their free spirited kind of lovely space where they're just hanging out and smoking weed and eating pizza then that threat that's outside of them that they're not inviting that they're not you know they're not sexualizing themselves they're not doing anything wrong at all but they're being pursued and chased by this by this threat and i don't i don't i think this is us reading into the film because it's interesting it's being informed by conversations that are maybe more current but i do read it since i rewatched it this morning of like oh that's it's looming over them but they're not really doing anything to entice it they're not they're not doing anything to invite it in but they have to fight it off and it kills some of them in the process and of course this is like a light-hearted 80s slasher movie but i do think that it's interesting kind of thinking about it as an uninvited sexual threat but that's also a little bit like a caricature as opposed to dangerous because he is a caricature of a villain. He's a caricature of a of a killer. He's got yeah. a big drill. He looks like <laughs> he looks like a discount Bob from Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's not much character development there. He's never going to be like the one of the iconic um, slasher killers that no. we that we know and love. But I wonder if that also feeds into this reading of, um, you know, it's just this caricature of dangerous men that you should fear when actually it's usually the boys in your school yeah. your neighbors like people who are close or people who are supposed to be um fountains of security or sources of security and protection mm. um and obviously here i'm thinking about you know people in positions of power or yeah. specifically like men in positions of power that then assault and sometimes murder women but i'm taking it to a dark place when when thinking about this film but something you said really made me think of that is it's like he is kind of roaming around their house and trying to get in and -hmm. trying to kill them but there's no there's no argument for it there's no reason no not at all there's no methodology or motive he just purely is driven by that impulse Mm -hmm. and it's very reductive but yeah which kind of situates him outside of like the rational um you know, the the typical kind of character you see in a movie that you would mm. want to identify with. He becomes very um, saturated with just that one impulse. Yeah. Actually, while you were talking, I, it, I suddenly had another association because mm-hmm. if you recall at the beginning of this film, 
he kills the telephone maintenance lady. Yes, he does. And he's also wonder, wearing double dimmit. Double dimmit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love her look, actually. She yeah, looked she looked great. Right. <laughs> she, she looked fantastic. Um, but it is a very interesting uh, signifier that he mm. chose to kill her first in the film, or at least at the start of this film. Mm-hmm. And to me, that signifies that because he does that in two instances. He kills a telephone lady first and then mm-hmm. steals her van. And then later on, he cuts the cord of the phone mm-hmm. where the girls are trying to call the police because they know there's there's some disturbance outside. So this is a, a repeated pattern, which makes my ears kind of prick up a little bit and think, mm-hmm. ah, um, there's something there about him wanting to curtail their cap- the capacity to communicate. Mm-hmm. So there's something there in him that wants to halt the process of um kind of like linking together through the through the device of the telephone, which is for talking and sharing and connecting outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, th- th- you know, that I think plays really well into your theory about the sexual assault dimension of um, kind of like uh, shaming women into um, the abuse that they've had to suffer. But also within that is a whole network of... Um, you know, dom- dominance and bullying uh, victims where they're actually silenced. Mm-hmm. And so they're completely cut off and isolated from communicating their experience in a culture that blames them for the abuse they've suffered. Mm. So I think that the, the kind of cutting off the, of the of the telephone kind of activates that a little bit. I love how deep and how dark we've gone yeah. <laughs> on this film. Which- I know, right? <laughs> Which like has so many funny moments too. I don't Ooh. want anyone like listening to this who perhaps has not seen this film or hasn't seen it in a while. Like, I think that's those are great readings. But can we talk about the humor as well? Yes, I'm dying to. <laughs> the first one for me, by the way, mm-hmm. being the one that completely had me roaring, mm-hmm. like almost rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah, is when. <laughs> <laughs> when the pizza delivery yeah. guy, <laughs> oh my god, I love that moment. And honestly, same. I would not let good pizza go Hell go no. bad. Absolutely not. Like, fine, whatever, dead body, sure. But pizza, <laughs> like, excuse me. If also if it's Napoli gang truffle pizza, I'm like, oh. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I love her. I love her whole approach as well. I love that character. <laughs> she is so cool. And she's just like, you know what? I'm fucking hungry. Like, I'm just going to grab this pizza right now out of the, out of, like, pry it out of his cold, dead hands, literally, you know? <laughs> <laughs> fucking amazing. And also the way that the pizza delivery guy is murdered. I mean, he's kind of already <laughs> dead, but I found it very funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> Like he got he got the like the Oedipus treatment, didn't he? He had his two eyeballs like drilled out of his skull, um, and then oh. he just falls to the ground. I mean, it's just it, it, there's something there to me that um, really because it, it is just the setup of it as well. Because they're like <laughs> they're just like waiting to open the door. They're counting. They're like like little dollar mm-hmm. bills. You know, it's so innocent and wholesome. And then the guy just falls down and it's, I, I, yeah, I do really like those little gags in the film. Hey, you know what? Free pizza though. They don't have to pay for it, don't they? <laughs> even better. It tastes even better when it's free, baby. Of course it does. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I did. I find, I found it very funny. Um, not as funny as the second one. Oh, yeah. Which we should get into. Um, Let's get into it. But yeah, before we get into Summer Party Massacre Part 2, is there mm. anything you wanted to mention about the first one that we didn't cover? I guess what I really want to emphasize actually segues into the second one mm-hmm. is, you know, the character of Courtney, actually. Yes. And um, what I really want to say about her is that she is throughout the film you can see that she really wants to be a part of this older crew you know including mm-hmm. her sister mm-hmm. you know she she's kind of in a rush to grow up isn't she yeah and which is totally normal i think at that age mm-hmm. and she's so curious but she's also super um she's got this kind of real sassy energy about her as well 
and which makes her very like, you know, outgoing. And she wants to, she, she's like the, I guess the part of the film that drives it the most for me. Mm -hmm. I identified most with her because I want to know, I want to see, I want to, I want to like peer, you know, uh, kind of like pull back the curtain and see what's going on. These other people are doing something and I'm so curious about it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, it, as an audience, um, it's very inviting to, to relate to Courtney. And I think that there's something really interesting that shifts from that, you know, that kind of like get up and go that she had, that sassiness, that fierceness, mm-hmm. which I think actually dolls down in the second one because she's experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. She's seen too much. You know, she's been hiding under that couch and actually witnessing, bearing witness to the driller killer um, committing atrocities mm-hmm. and she she almost lost her sister as a result so I think that we can really see that shift taking place where like a, that little spark is a little bit dulled mm-hmm. and now we have a very much more cautious character I would say in the second one yes we do now it's time for the fun part Let's get into talking about the second one right away because I do find it interesting that they they take the character of Courtney as the the only connective tissue between mm. these two films. Yeah. And this one does become a lot more overtly psychosexual. <laughs> yeah. Because it literally is the driller killer who they murder at the end of the first one um, yeah. comes back, but he is literally in Courtney's dreams. Yes, he is. It's very supernatural, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, you know, for a long time, we're like, okay, is this, is, is he just a figment of our imagination? Is, is, is there really someone there stalking them? Mm. And being in that, I guess mindset in the movie and that feeling that misdirection is is oddly satisfying the not knowing and I like the fact that he's also represented as a kind of like greaser rock star listen we need to talk about this let's do it (laughs) he okay what did you think of him (laughs) I can't get over him I so in the first one he's he's played by Michael Villela Mm-hmm. Um and he's like he really takes it seriously. Like you can tell this man is like gone method, he's done his research, he's like the mm-hmm. denim represents something, what we don't know, but like there's things there, he's he's taking it very, very seriously. And <laughs> this one <laughs> I I think he's like Danny Zuko with a drill. Oh my god, yes, Anna. <laughs> he is like, I've got tassels, I'm here to dance. I am auditioning for Broadway, but like a spooky Broadway. And like his driller is now a guitar with a drill at the top. <laughs> and he's like, I am a rock star. I'm sort of like a disco Freddy Krueger. Oh my God. <laughs> I will penetrate your dreams, baby, with my jams. That's his whole vibe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god Anna you queen <laughs> <laughs> like I can't get enough of him because he's not scary he's just ridiculous and kind of like what he's like a greaser he's like a greaser um serial killer I was like, yeah like a like a camp you yes. know um guy looking in the window I mean <laughs> I mean, I might just invite him over to have a dance off. I don't know whether it's, you know. Listen, yeah, he's not scary. This one was dance horror. This one was like a, a dance yes. horror musical. Because you know the you know his main scene where he basically just dances for a full two minutes? Oh yeah. While like showing off showing off his how he can not play his drill guitar because he doesn't play it. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. Like it is such a bizarre, <laughs> completely absurd representation of a villain. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they arrived at this concept. It's certainly not scary, but it is intriguing. <laughs> There's something you said at the beginning of our chat, though, that I think really applies mm. for this one, where you were mentioning that, like, the you thought that the Summer Party Massacre first film mm. was all about the girls' nascent sexual desire. Yeah, and I think this is that's very applicable to this film. Yeah, because he literally gets into her dreams and. Yeah. Courtney in this film is kind of debating as well whether to you know to have sex or not like whether to date this guy she likes this boy blah 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 and so it's like it is that those fantasies those first sexual fantasies that come with a lot of I guess wrapped up in trauma and guilt um now that that film is that (laughs) deep but there is also the fact that he has gone from double denim to double leather yeah, he's a leather daddy. He is with tassels. <laughs> he's wearing little leather dancing shoes. He he's got you know he's got greased up hair. He's got a a what do you call it? A bouffant? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> he's dad. He looks like Daddy Zuko. He really totally. Does. Oh, hundred percent. They must have deliberately connected that. You know, um, mm. a really kind of almost like perverting. Um, the Danny character into this weird mutant, you know, like serial killing, driller killer, you know, who's also very camp and wants to have yeah. a sing and dance with you, you know, like, um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, um, I think, yeah, definitely in this second installment of this series, this is when the, I guess, like the conflicted feelings towards sexuality mm-hmm. really come to the center. And, and yeah, for sure, it's like really predicated on Courtney and how she's, you can see she's very tempted by this young man. She dreams about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, she's in this band and she seems to be singing to him. It's all very quaint and romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked the scene when he kind of pulled her aside right at the beginning mm-hmm. and she's like sort of like leaning back against a tree and he says, you know, he's trying to invite her to do something at the weekend and she says, well, I was going to invite you someplace. And then he just looks directly at her and he says, well, invite away then. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ooh, I'm getting a little hot under the collar here, you know? Um, like he seems much more experienced mm-hmm. and he seems to know much more what he wants. He's very direct. And I, I like that he doesn't play games. You know, mm-hmm. he, um, I like his style and it seems to be, I think it, it, I, I and I say this with the utmost affection for both of them. I don't mm-hmm. think either of them have any bad intent, mm-hmm. but I think he's, I think he's trying to corrupt Courtney in the best possible way. Um, I think he's trying to like sort of like gently direct her towards her own desire and what mm-hmm. she wants to do. But she is, yes, of course, you know, recovering from a trauma. And I think I think maybe what's gone on for her psychologically, again, this is all speculation and mm-hmm. just pure inter- interpretation. But I think that I think Courtney has internalized the shame from the first film of wanting to be a part of the big girls club, wanting to, you know, just her curiosity about men Mm -hmm. and her, just like those like budding feelings and puberty and all that sexuality that is like, you know, still underdeveloped and she's Mm -hmm. underaged, but it's, it's starting to like, you know, starting to, to burgeon a little bit. I think what's happened to her is that she's completely associated those early impulses with what she witnessed, those two things have become completely fused and coalesced together. Totally. I think right? you're absolutely right. And that's what that's what prohibits her really from like fully surrendering to this experience of like a teenage romance now in the present time in this film, in the second part. Mm-hmm. She feels the guilt and the shame that has fused those things together. And she she's scared to go back into that space because she thinks it's full of danger. Mm. 
And it is. Oh, totally it is. Yeah. It is because the 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 new the new driller killer um <laughs> seems to be able to kind of exit her dreams and actually kill some people. Yes. Which is never really explained, is it? No, it is it's it's conveniently left out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, you know what, just go with it. We're not gonna put as much thought into this as Wes Craven did into Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's it's all meant to be this absurdist fantasy. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is fun. Like I think Oh, it's fun. With all of its psychosexual elements, which I do think are interesting and kind of on the nose in some ways. Mm. It's it's actually both of these films are really fun. This the second one is just absurd and that's why it's very entertaining. Plus, there's yeah. like several musical interludes in the film. Oh my! I was just gonna say, and I swear <laughs> to God, the the bit where they start it's just the girls. They've just arrived at this house, and they're drinking, you know, alcohol. They've got some great snacks. I have to say, they got corn dogs, you know. <laughs> and then a song comes on the radio, and and they blast it up, and they're dance, and the way that they're like spraying each other with champagne, and then throwing the feathers from the pillows oh my god i mean the fomo was like raging at that point anna like i wanted to be there i mean at that point i was like yeah sure this is exactly what goes on at every single girl's slumber party <laughs> exactly I know because, what happens oh 100 oh, it's just the script that we follow you know we agree we, we agree to, to the script at, at our weekly meetings mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. And then we just carry on. The funny part was when um, the two, again, we have the repetition of the two l- sort of like lurking guys in the window. Yeah. That, like literally just copy and paste from the first one. But the lines were hilarious in this one because one of them said, I can't believe that girls really do this at slumber parties. And the other one's like, that's because we are dead and we're in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Unhinged puppies again. <laughs> I swear, I, I I had to like pause just to finish laughing and then carry on. I did a video essay about the second film for our video, which I think is on their on their streaming service now. Amazing! And I remember just rewinding the 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 dance sequence with the driller killer, <laughs> and it lasts a full three minutes. Mary, it's a full <laughs> three minute scene. He dances with a guitar with a drill at the tip <laughs> a full three minutes in this film oh my gosh i love these choices <laughs> yes <laughs> it's like what what, the what a concept <laughs> it's just bizarre i feel like again i feel like the actor who plays the driller killer it's another actor from the first yeah. one also was his first role and again, you kind of feel this this sense is like he's really going for it. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Oh, definitely. He's like, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring everything to this character. Like, you know, who's the driller killer? What does he want? The driller killer wants to rock out. That's what he wants. Not even What's his death. motivation. <laughs> Not even death. Or very tight leather trousers will stop him from rocking out. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> It's hilarious. It's so much fun. I it is tr- pure joy. Like, yeah, for sure. This film mm. is, um, it does not take itself too seriously. I mean, that's, you know, it goes without saying. Mm. But it's also hilarious to me because I don't know whether they were trying to connect this, um, this rock star killer with the kind of like the old, um, I guess like the old, uh, warnings about you know rock and roll corrupting young people and how it's like immoral you know and um that, that kind of satanic panic that's attached to rock well, stars was, especially in the 80s well this was released in 1987 so i guess kind of hair metal was at the top yeah. of its popularity and so i guess it's like well you know don't you go near the 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 hot boys in the leather pants they're gonna kill you <laughs> Those Axel Roses and those Motley Crue fellas. Mm-mm. Bad news. All of them. Because I swear to God, all I could think of when I saw him in his pants was, do you remember in Friends when Ross wore wet leather pants? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and then he was at his date's house and he went to the bathroom and he couldn't yep. get them back on, so he put the powder on. Yep. Yep. 
That's literally all I could think of. Yep. I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, this actor probably had to, like, unless there were pleather, which are much easier yes. to manage, uh, he'd have to live in those pants. Because <laughs> there's no way they're coming off without, like, at least a layer of skin. <laughs> they're so tight. They're so tight. Oh, my God. And I know we're not covering the third one, but mm. I was wondering if you'd seen it and, and remember anything about it because i i have seen it well i saw it i did see it it. It, well same same i could not for the life of me recall anything from it i Mm -hmm. do remember seeing it though um i did actually watch it with some pals in high school Mm -hmm. um because it was 1990 wasn't it yeah when it released yeah Yeah, that's right i I remember we rented it on vhs um but even then i mean i was really young then and i you certainly would have wouldn't have been able to like critique a film in a mm. in, in a serious way, but I do just remember thinking, "What the fuck is this shit?" <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that's the official tagline, Mary. What the fuck is this shit? Slumber Party Massacre Three. <laughs> yes, I can see it on the poster. <laughs> I actually looked up the yeah. poster as you were speaking, Mary, and the tagline is actually "It's Driller Time," and this bit's for you. <laughs> Oh my god. What to even say to that? It's great. It's That's actually hilarious. better than the tagline for the second one, which is the party begins when the lights go out, which makes <laughs> no sense. Literally zero. They did not think <laughs> that one through. <laughs> but yeah, the quality oh is substantially god. dropped in the third one. Yeah, what happened? I feel like it was sabotage almost because the first two, they, I feel like the first two really had their own thing going on. You know, they had their own tone and their mm. own idiosyncrasies, you know. And then it's like it, it almost fell off a cliff or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Although they, they all made money. Like it's a it's a very, yeah. it's a successful franchise. Every single one of these films was made for essentially pennies mm. and and made um made over a million dollars each one i think that even the third one which is terrible but the the first one was a success which is why there was sequels greenlit um immediately like it sold really well especially overseas and and we've got a a remake coming up this year yeah which i'm kind of excited about i can't believe it's taken this long i know i can't wait to see it me too. I, I, I mean, honestly, chatting about this with you now actually makes me want to see the third one again. Like, <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, Mary. Don't, don't put yourself through that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment, Anna, you know? Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I am definitely looking forward to this remake. Me too. And, and maybe <laughs> maybe we'll get to cover it on this podcast as well. That would be great. Yeah. But Mary, thank you so much for for rewatching the Slumber Party Massacre for this podcast and all your thoughts and insight into it. Oh, thank you. I should be thanking you because it's been such a pleasure to watch them and then talk about it with you. And where can people find more of your work online? You can just follow me at Psychstar, P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R. I'm Psychstar on Twitter and Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.